hey, there's this really long and good tradition in the church of um, just not allowing these big kind of cornerstone um, events or part of the story uh, just uh, creep up on us, like Easter or uh, Christmas, for example. The idea is actually we take some time to prepare for these, some time to get our heads and our heart in the game so we don't kind of miss all the glory and all the meaning and the mystery and the impact of it all. And so this season of Advent um, is what this season of preparation for Christmas is all about. I think we all know in our bones that there's something more to Christmas than just mince pies, you know, those little fruit mince pies, things that look like a fire trap, and, you know, socks for dad, um, you know, there's something bigger going on here. And what I want to do over the next four weeks is try to get to what's really at the heart of all this and to uh, tap right into that. Now, you know, like I said at the start, because we're in this auditorium here, we're rented premises, we're having Christmas early, right? We're, having, we're celebrating Christmas on the 18th. And um, so in order to, we, I mean, that's just part of the deal, but we're actually also therefore going to kick off um, Advent a little early uh, also. And so over the next uh, four weeks, we're going to take four Sundays uh, leading into Christmas as we think about what does it mean for that Jesus has brought the love, joy, hope and peace of God uh, into the world. And, you know, after another incredibly challenging year, I, mean, I don't really know how to... I've, 2020's found like, felt like this girlfriend I could never break up with properly. I'm not really sure, is it a good time or a bad time? What's really happening here? But after a really tricky year, uh, you know, it's been quite a difficult year, I think the temptation is just to kind of Michael Buble or kind of Mariah Carey away into, you know, Christmas... Just like a, just like a, you know, it's going to be like a nice comfy duvet. You just slide over and just like, I'm going to wake up and it's going to be 2023, right? It's, we don't want to be doing that. We don't, I mean, I don't want to be the Christmas Grinch either. Isaac's doing that for us. I don't want you to be that. Um, and there's a place for comfort and there's a place for kind of all, all that stuff. But, you know, the reality is the content and the, just the sheer kind of wildness of God stepping onto the stage of human history, you know, in person, and really more importantly, as a person. This is so wild, you know, this is just like, it launches on the stage, like you're like at a GNR concert or a Metallica concert, and it's the first cause that really cranked the party, right? There's only one way to celebrate that, there's only one way to listen to that, right? And it's not quietly, it's not just like with this you know, music going on in the background, it's at 11. So all I'm saying is public, you know, service announcement. You know, this year, this Christmas, we're, we're coming in hot, right? We're going to, like, it's going to be loud, and we're going to really uh, go for it. Are we in for this? Yeah. Okay, cool. Like, the, one, part of the backstory behind that is, you know, that Handel's Messiah, you know, obviously big music, absolutely fantastic. Handel... Um, uh, was he, he wrote the music for that, and another person, uh, uh, Jennings, he was the person who uh, wrote the lyrics or wrote, wrote the words, and he funded the whole project. You know, there's the, um, and on the first draft, you know, Handel, you know, he's obviously a genius, he hands it in, and Jens reads it and goes like, Phew, it's just not big enough, right? It's not loud enough, it doesn't have the kind of the energy that's required. So he actually handed it back. You know, imagine doing this. I'm going to hand this back to you, Handel, because you don't know what you're doing. And it needs to be a lot bigger. It needs to be a lot louder because it needs to match 
the subject matter of uh, the occasion. So really that's what I want to do uh, over this advent. Oh, am I slightly, is this too much energy? Is this too much? Because I want you to come with me on this, all right? This is, we're not going to slide into Christmas, just snooze our way in. We're going to come in hot because actually there's something, just, you know, the resurrection energy around the person of Jesus is just big, and I want us to tap uh, right into that. So we are going to have um, a number, we, we're going to do over this like four weeks, is we're going to camp out, I thought, because it's easy, I thought we'd camp out in the book of Revelation for five weeks. <laughs> so, I don't know, I mean, I'm talking about going big. Let's, like, let's, let's just go big, right? Let's, let's get into the book of Revelation for uh, the next five weeks because I want to ask ourselves the question, how do, we pe- how do we be people who are marked by not just hope but enduring hope, not just joy but defiant joy, not just love, not just, you know, sweetness, but actually, you know, fearless love and unrelenting joy, now, I'm not too sure if you've ever actually managed to find your way to the book of Revelation. It's, it's at the end. It's a, quite a tricky read. Um, you know, it's, it's written in this style. It's called the apocalyptic, apocalyptic genre. And it's, it's, a kind, it's a style of writing that we don't use today. And it's, and it's got, like, monsters with four heads and serpents with seven horns. It basically assumes that you've read all of the Bible and understand it. There's uh, something like there's three, over 360 intertextual references that the, the book of Revelation uses, and it flicks back and it kind of ties into the Old Testament. It's like if you're watching the end of a Star Wars film or the end of the Lord of the Rings film. We haven't even started. It's like, it's all right, Flo. It's going to be a good time. By the way, don't read your children the book of Revelation. That child has been read the book of Revelation. It's like, well, the apocalypse is going to happen. Um, it's, it's definitely an adult read, right? It's a very demanding read. Um, I'm a self-professed Bible nerd. Revelation is the most, um, it's the most tricky, it's the most demanding read um, that there is in, in the Bible. And it's partly because of the genre of it. With these kind of, there's lots, there's lots of blood and there's lots of battles. And this is all part of how the story works. So um, to be honest, when I first kind of started studying Revelation um, as a child, uh, not really, it, it, it felt like um, the first time when I came across this. Uh, this is Guernica, and it was painted by um, Picasso and in response to the bombing of a Spanish uh, town from which its name uh, has been drawn. And just to give you a bit of a kind of feel for the, the scale of this painting, it's seven meters long and three and a half meters high. It's absolutely uh, enormous. And just prior to World War II, uh, the Nazis used the town of Guernica, which is the Spanish town of Guernica, to try out their new bombing tactic of um, you know, this new aerial bombing campaign. And this was actually signed off by the Spanish fascist journal, uh, Francisco Franco, to help, you know, there was a Spanish civil war was going on, and so he enlisted the Nazis to come and bomb this town as a part of tipping the balance of the civil war uh, into his favor. 
They were intoxicated by ideas of fascism, intoxicated by ideas of cultural superiority. You know, war, uh, there's a lot of kind of talk or rhetoric around the valor of war, the glory of war. But Guernica, if you kind of, the angularity of the whole um, picture, the wounded horse right in the middle. You've got the mother who's got a dead child and the dismembered soldiers on the ground. The bull, the fascist bull um, in the top there. And what Guernica is saying, there's no glory, there's no valor in war. What happens in war is the innocent suffer, the innocent die. And so this picture is actually sees something prophetically into a particular situation. And there's this great story about, um, this was actually shown in Paris, and um, so Picasso painted this in Paris, and uh, the, after the exhibition, a, um, a Nazi officer came and knocked on Picasso's um, apartment and walked through the door and saw a picture of Guernica and said to Picasso, did you paint this? And he said, oh no, did you do this? To which uh, Picasso replied, no, you did this. Similarly, the book of Revelation was written to uh, seven churches in Asia Minor, and they're actually dotted around uh, this, this uh, quite um, familiar postal route that was used by the Roman Empire, and it's on an area that is known as Asia Minor at the time, which is now modern-day Turkey, and it also was written to respond to a particular situation. And the situation was that under Nero, the Christians in Rome over that way, um, they had um, suffered uh, really terribly. In 64, um, the real, um, there was the fire of uh, Rome, and the Christians were blamed for that fire. And the Roman historian Tacitus, um, who was no friend of the Christians, um, but it was a contemporary of the events, uh, wrote this. He said, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christines by the populace. Accordingly, an arrest was made of all Christians who pleaded guilty, and then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with animal skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or they were nailed to crosses, all were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Now, the letter that was written, or the revelation of Jesus Christ that, um, that we have in the Bible, that was written 30 years uh, after what had happened in Rome. And while Rome is you know, nearly 1,500 kilometers away to the west of um, of Rome, the Rome, you know, these churches were also part of the Roman Empire. And they had started to experience a small degree or a minor degree of persecution and um, that they had, like the church had done in Rome. And it only begun to be minor. I mean, John himself was exiled by Domitian uh, to the island of Patmos. And so he's there writing this, um, this, this prophetic letter to the churches because he can see and he can sense that what happened in 64 was in Rome was most likely going to happen to uh, these churches in around 95 um, AD when the letter was written. 
And this is, what, this is really getting to the heart of what this word um, apocalypse means. And it often gets translated, the, word, the Greek word apocalypse gets, or apocalypto, gets translated in the word uh, revelation. You know, the word apocalypse just a, is, a, is a Greek word with you know, English letters um, popped in there. And believe it or not, it doesn't mean the end of the world. You know, often if I'm late for a meeting, you'll, I'll send you a text, oh, I'm caught in a traffic apocalypse. You know, I'm in Auckland. Uh, it's not uncommon, right? But it doesn't actually mean uh, the end of the world at all. Um, the word apocalypse is just the regular Greek word to mean to unveil or reveal. Calypto is the word to cover, and therefore the word apocalypto or apocalypse quite simply means to uncover and reveal the thing that has already uh, been there. Now, what's important about apocalypse and the apocalyptic genre is the way that it is underpinned by the biblical understanding of how reality works. In the, Bib in the Bible, you get this idea that um, like reality is made up of these two dimensions, really. We've got, let's call this earth, this is the earthly dimension of reality. And then um, this rug that gets used as all kinds of teaching props. This rug, um, this is uh, heaven. And so heaven and earth are not miles away from each other. They're in fact these two realities that are very close to each other. And in fact, they interact and overlap with each other. So that's the first thing, that heaven and earth are miles away, but actually heaven and earth are two realities that are very close to each other. Now related to this idea is that, the, is that earth is actually controlled by heaven. Heaven is the control room for what happens uh, on earth. And what John reveals is, well, John gets to answer the question of what, is, what the heck's going on down here on earth? Why is it so bad? By revealing what is going on in heaven. And so... And what I'm going to do now is we're going to get to what is the theological center of this reality. And what's the theological center that gets revealed in the book of Revelation? Because the key thing here is that at this control center of heaven that is controlling earth, what is revealed is in fact a knockoff of a ghost chair. <laughs> is that there's a throne in the center of reality. And there's one that is seated on the throne. And Revelation 4 and 5 paints this most amazing image of the worship that is happening around this uh, central throne. I want to read just a small portion to, of this to you as it paints this most um, amazing picture. And so it says there, And then I looked, and there in heaven stood a door open, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave, give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. 
They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and they numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So what we have here, you've got got to picture this. We've got this, get rid of that stand. What we've got here is this amazing picture where we've got these, first of all, we've got standing around this one on the throne. We've got these four very strange looking creatures. They're heavenly creatures covered with eyes and they're talked about as if they're um, powerful creatures. They're the ones who are part of actually um, seeing that the rule of God in heaven is actually uh, discharged. And connected around these four elders, you've got um, these... uh, uh, the, the elders, the 24 elders of heaven. And they are also um, part of this rule and reign of God in heaven, discharging God's rule on to up there or out there. And then this kind of, it's like the spotlight moves from this close circle just out ever so slightly. And beside the one seated on the throne is this slain lamb, which of course is alive. This is a reference to the person of Jesus who is on the throne or beside the throne who is also worshipped. This is the one whose death and resurrection is making all things new. And then suddenly it's like another bank of lights turns on. It's like John's in the middle of a massive stadium and he steps back and another set of lights turns on and then you've got these thousands of angels, thousands and thousands, virtually an uncountable number of angels around the throne, and then another bank of lights turn on, and then all of creation, every living creature, everything that has been created, is worshipping the one on the throne, because this one, this slain lamb, has actually established God's earth um, rule on earth as it is in heaven, and it's an unassailable kingdom. And so all of creation is involved pointing forward and worshipping this one who is on the throne. Part of the, um, John's response to how do we live in an environment that is very much against us? How do we live in a situation where we're living in these cities and we want to make a really great impact for God's kingdom, but we're struggling, but we feel like we're going under? In fact, a lot of uh, hope is beginning to evaporate. What John's answer to that is, Make worship your central business and everything will flow from there. Make worship the central thing you do as a church. Worshiping the one on the throne. Worship Jesus and everything will flow uh, from there. To talk about worship or to talk about worshiping Jesus is quite simply to acknowledge that in fact all of life comes from the central source. All of reality is located here, the person of Jesus. And it's about allowing that to order our lives. 
We all worship something. We all draw our life. We all draw our identity from some source. The only question is what? David Foster Wallace, in his book, um, recent uh, novel, just, just before he died, says this. Here's something else that's weird, but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spirituality type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when, the, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff. The trick is keeping the truth up front and daily consciousness. One of the profound truths that Foster Wallace is pointing to, and it's actually what you get within the Bible, is that you become what you worship. It's just a law of nature. It's just like the spiritual law. We become what we worship. And the trick here, that, like, what, like Foster Wallace is saying, is that we need to keep that in front of mind. And part of the reason why we gather here regularly to worship God is not just because it's true, but in fact, it's the point that Foster Wallace is making. It's not only true, but it's the thing that keeps uh, us true. It keeps us being the human beings that God has uh, created to be. You see, we didn't create this world. This is not our, you know, we, we didn't create this world And so it's actually not our job to keep running this world. It's actually God's job. It's God's job. It's God's responsibility. And there's an incredibly important thing that happens when we place ourselves here. When we place ourselves here, whose job is it to run the world? It's actually, you've you've created this job for you to run the world. You place yourself here, and it's up to you to make sure everything works. You place yourself here, and you can't be wrong, right? You place yourself here, and no one can disagree with you. No one's allowed to disagree with you. You place yourself here, and you're not allowed to risk anything. You place yourself here, and you're actually not allowed to really just go out and try anything. It's up to you to hold the world together. Can you see how placing yourself here is actually one of the most dehumanizing things you could ever do to yourself? Because you're placing yourself in a situation you're just not designed to carry. You place yourself here and you're just going to increase that sense of anxiety and stress on your life to an infinite proportion because there's only one person who can do this job. The one who has overcome death and the one who has been resurrected, in which all life and all power resides. I wonder if there's anyone here today who feels like, you know, in their life at this point in time, that it feels like you're just pushing a massive rock up a massive hill. 
Or perhaps you're here today and it doesn't feel like I'm pushing a rock up a hill. Perhaps you're here today and it feels like, man, I'm stuck on this treadmill. And dude, I've just got to keep running or the wheels of life are just going to come off. You know, to celebrate Jesus, to celebrate this, is actually to recognize it's actually somebody else's job to run the world and it's not you. It's not your job. It's an invitation to take a breath and to realize that you're a creature here. You're not the creator here. It's not your job. Just take the pressure off yourself and stop kind of acting and being in such a way towards yourself and towards others as if something else was true. But if you were here, Maybe you're here today and you have an overwhelming sense of anxiety about how the world is going, or a sense in which, you know, gosh, like, not just life is all up to me, but in fact, things are not going well, and I don't know how to fix it, and I don't know what to do. And so the temptation is actually just to withdraw from the world, or just to become kind of like self-centered and self-focused. I want to, if that feeling, if that feeling like you, I want you to ask the Spirit today to actually reconnect you to the reality that the one who's created all things is in fact putting all things back together. And when you open yourself to that, you're opening yourself to a whole life and reality and power that is beyond you. You just trust that Jesus is at work um, making all things new. Perhaps you're here today and you feel like you've slipped into a cycle of cynicism or perhaps entitlement. You're not sure how this has happened, but you feel the need to comment on absolutely everything, be that kind of publicly or privately, and you're stuck in a situation where you're just trying to manage other people's expectations of you. And the invitation today is to get yourself out of here and stand here and realize that it's actually not other people's expectations of you or what they feel about you that is the most defining thing about you. You get off here and get them off there and start to live as the creature that God intended you to be, freely and lightly. You know, there's one Lord of this world, and to celebrate Jesus as we celebrate in this Christmas season is actually not just remembering about this miracle that happened on uh, Christmas Day in a little town of Bethlehem. To actually celebrate Jesus is an act of resistance. It's an act of resistance to anything else that is trying to take the place here, be that ourselves, be that you know, some other kind of, you know, uh, other people's opinions, be that political posturing, be that cultural pressure. To celebrate Jesus is an act of resistance to anybody else who pretends to take uh, this place. It's an invitation to really to freedom. It's an invitation from, you know, basically releasing yourself from the burden of trying to manage the world and to receive life as a gift. Life is a gift. Life is a gift. You don't have to squeeze it. You don't have to manage it. What you need to do is to receive it. Celebrating Jesus in this way also witnesses to the reality that Jesus is Lord without the need for coercion or the need to be defensive. And so we can, because we don't have to do those things, we can lean into justice. We can lean into creativity. We can lean into trying new things. 
We can lean into generosity. We can lean into pushing the boat out and trying new things because ultimately our world is safe and ultimately uh, you are safe. So you can lean in to like be a creature that's living freely and lightly in the world that God uh, has created. So quite simply, celebrating Jesus this Christmas season, you've, I mean, that's going to be the spiritual discipline for the next four weeks. Just whatever you do, what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate Jesus. My only requirement is you can't do it quietly. Don't do it quietly, right? It's actually an amazing event, and whatever you have to do, it has to be loud. It has to be at uh, 11. In our formational communities, there's going to be um, a number of... Um, you know, kind of um, dinners to finish off this year to celebrate Jesus. And what we're going to be doing is celebrating Jesus here on the 18th. And we need everybody in. We need all your voices. We're going to go big here. And of course, the warm up to that is at the pub um, where we're going to kind of warm ourselves up into our carols and, you know, like, and have a pint um, as we get going. Whatever we're doing, what we're doing is we're celebrating this one who has stepped into the world and the person of Jesus. And because of his birth and because of his resurrection, it's the guarantee that one day all things will be made new. Is that good? Let's stand together.